Welcome to Introduction to Feminist and Social Justice Studies. This is the 21st audio episode of the semester-long course for the Gender, Sexuality, Feminist, and Social Justice Studies program at McGill University, taking place in the fall of 2021. My name is Dr. Alex Ketchum. I'm your professor for this course. I'm joined by three teaching assistants who are graduate students at McGill University. Our teaching team will lead you through the materials of this course. While material throughout the semester has had the potential to be triggering, as this episode will focus on the topic of sexual and domestic violence, I want to take an intentional pause to speak to the triggering nature of this content. I'll be speaking about this topic through the lens of the kind of language that we use. Let's get started. Put on your face, know your place, shut up and smile. Don't spread your I could do that But no one knows me No one ever will If I don't say something If I just lie still Would I be that monster scared Today's song is Quiet by Milk. Milk organized 26 singers from various choirs around the United States into the hashtag I can't keep quiet chorus to perform an acapella version of her song Flash Mob Style during the 2017 Women's March in Washington, D.C. The song draws on the artist's experiences of domestic violence and sexual assault. In her music video for the song, to which I linked in the transcript, Milk's new version incorporate survivors singing with her. She wrote in the music video notes that she has seen the song help survivors speak out after the Women's March, and believes that the new version has the power to encourage and empower all of those thinking of coming forward at this time. The Women's March in 2017 was a worldwide protest on January 21st, 2017, the day after the inauguration of President Donald Trump. This march is tied to the hashtag MeToo movement, The Me Too movement is a movement against sexual harassment and sexual abuse. The phrase Me Too was initially used in the context on social media in 2006 on MySpace by sexual harassment survivor and activist Tarana Burke. Me Too aims to empower survivors of sexual harassment and sexual assault through empathy and solidarity through strength in numbers by visibly demonstrating how many have survived sexual assault and harassment, especially in the workplace. In today's lecture, I want to think about the role of language and power. In the transcript, I have included a screenshot of a tweet from the New York Times from this past spring. The tweet reads, Minneapolis, a photographer was shot in the eye. Washington, D.C. Protesters struck a journalist with his own microphone. Louisville, a reporter was hit by a pepper ball on live television by an officer who appeared to be aiming at her. In this text, we can see the power of language and how violence can be hidden by grammar. 
This tweet is talking about Black Lives Matter protests. The first example about Minneapolis is in the passive voice. The tweet says, a photographer was shot in the eye. Who shot the photographer? Was it the police? Why didn't the New York Times say that? How does this use of the passive voice here defer blame? It isn't as if the New York Times doesn't use the active voice. The next part of the tweet about Washington, D.C. comfortably uses the active voice to talk about what protesters are doing. The paper there finds no problem there in allocating blame. But in the next example about a police officer aiming a pepper ball at a reporter, the paper again uses the passive voice. We can see the power in language and the power through use of passive voice when it comes to speaking about domestic violence. This is a point highlighted by Jackson Katz in his TED Talk about domestic violence. I linked to the TED Talk in the transcript, and the entire transcript of his talk is available in 27 languages. I'm going to talk about one key section of this talk. Katz says, I want to share with you this exercise that illustrates on the sentence structure level how the way we think, literally the way that we use language, conspires to keep our attention off of men. This is about domestic violence in particular, but you can plug in other analogs. This comes from the work of feminist linguist Julia Pen Penelope. It starts with a very basic English sentence. John beat Mary. That's a good English sentence. John is the subject, beat is the verb, Mary is the object. Good sentence. Now we're going to move to the second sentence, which says the same thing in the passive voice. Mary was beaten by John. And now a whole lot has happened in one sentence. We've gone from John beat Mary to Mary was beaten by John. We've shifted our focus in one sentence from John to Mary. And you can see John is very close to the end of the sentence, well close to dropping off the map of our psychic plane. The third sentence, John is dropped and we have Mary was beaten. And now it's all about Mary. We're not even thinking about John. It's totally focused on Mary. Over the past generation, we've used synonymous terms with beaten, which is battered. So we have, Mary was battered. And the final sentence in the sequence, pulling from the others is, Mary is a battered woman. So now Mary's very identity, Mary is a battered woman, is what was done to her by John in the first instance. But we've demonstrated that John has long ago left the conversation. Those of us who work in domestic and sexual violence fields know that victim blaming is pervasive in this realm, which is to say blaming the person to whom something was done rather than the person who did it, end quote. Here Katz, building off of the work of Julie Penelope, draws attention to the power of language that we use to talk about violence. In the rest of the talk, he discusses how domestic violence and sexual abuse are often called women's issues, but since the vast majority of domestic violence is done by men against women, girls, and boys, these are intrinsically men's issues. He shows how these violent behaviors are tied to toxic definitions of manhood. I appreciate in this talk that he acknowledges the feminist work he builds on and that his male privilege enables him to have this platform. I really want us to be cognizant of the kind of language and grammar that we use to discuss violence. This brings us to the terms survivor versus victim language. As lawyer and advocate Akila Kowasetti discusses, there are many reasons to use the term survivor and not victim. Victim could imply passivity, acceptance of one's circumstances, and a causality. The word victim robs individuals of their agency and their ability to fight back. Survivor displays the individual's resistance, ability to take action in the face of immense obstacles, and the day-to-day -day work of surviving despite immense trauma. Survivor implies ingenuity, resourcefulness, and inner strength. I think using victim diminishes the inner strength of those who have experienced any sort of domestic, sexual, gender-based violence 
or really violence more broadly. The truth is when trauma of this level hits an individual, even the simple act of surviving, making it to the next day can involve immense strength. But calling someone a victim might diminish their agency in their survival and makes light of all they are doing to keep going, ignores the fact that many survivors are moving forward with their lives and healing from the trauma, end quote. Survivor language can be powerful. It can empower and shift our frame. Language is also important when we are discussing consent. Consent occurs when one person voluntarily agrees to the proposal or desires of another. This brings us to the optional reading for today, Jacqueline Friedman's and Jessica Valenti's 2008 book, Yes Means Yes, Visions of Female Sexual Power in a World Without Rape. The book consists of a series of 27 essays by various authors which all share the central theme of preventing rape by addressing the cultural and societal milieu that the authors claim is complicit in enabling rape. The title is a reference to the popular No Means No campaign against date rape. The authors rather put forward a framework of enthusiastic consent. Yes means yes. Enthusiastic consent is the model of consent that encourages people to make sure that the person they're about to have sex with is enthusiastic about the sexual interaction and wants to be there. Some of you may have seen the video that discusses consent via a cup of tea. I linked to it in the transcript. It's a useful way of thinking about consent. However, it doesn't address power discrepancies like the role of unequal power dynamics. This brings us to thinking about sexual assault in university contexts. In Canada, at least one in five women experience sexual assault while attending a post-secondary institution. People of all genders can be sexually assaulted. However, statistically, the majority of sexual assaults are perpetuated by men, primarily against women. What do universities do to support their students against sexual har harassment, sexual assault, and rape? What about when it happens between students? What about when faculty members harass, assault, or rape students? Especially when you all attend a university which didn't ban sexual relations between professors and students until very, very recently, as in within the last two years. To attend McGill, as of last year, you've had to complete the It Takes All of Us module. Now, one might argue that a 45-minute module that one can click through while watching videos on one's phone isn't going to be the game changer in the fight against the epidemic of sexual assault. One might also suggest that a module like this might be useful for institutions to protect themselves legally, but it isn't going to do much in terms of prevention. One of your peers last year mentioned that a benefit of the program was that it did raise awareness that resources were available to students who have experienced different kinds of sexual assault, harassment, stalking, and rape. I linked to the resource page in the transcript. But I think we all know that we need to do more than just this module. This module is merely a beginning not the end point. The reading for today is Sarah Ahmed's 2018 piece, Refusal, Resignation, and Complaint. Ahmed presented a version of this talk at McGill in the fall of 2019. What Ahmed draws attention to here speaks to the experiences of survivors of sexual assault and the experiences of survivors of racist harassment within a university context. The piece speaks to Ahmed's concept from her book, Living a Feminist Life, where she writes, when you expose a problem, you pose the problem. It might then be assumed that the problem would go away if you would just stop it, if you would just stop talking about it, or if you went away. End quote. She speaks to the way that institutions want to sweep these problems under the rug and ignore them. 
By raising attention to assault or harassment, she writes how the institution then treats the person making the complaint as the problem. Ahmed writes, I spoke to an administrator about her work in supporting students through the complaints process. So your first stage would require the complainant to try and resolve it informally, which is really difficult in some situations and which is where it might get stuck in a department. And so it takes a really tenacious complaining student to say, no, I am being blocked. So you can imagine that something on paper that looks very linear is actually very circular a lot of times. And I think that's the problem. Students get discouraged and get demoralized and feel hard done by, and nothing's getting resolved, and then they're in a murky place and they can't get out. A complaint is not simply an outcome of a no. A complaint requires you to keep saying no along the way. And what is required to keep a complaint going, such as confidence and tenacity, might be what is negated by the very experiences that led you to complain, end quote. It is in this way that the survivor or victim has to relive the assault over and over and over, be moved from office to office at the institution. Ahmed talks about how this project of complaint was inspired by her own experiences of working on multiple inquiries into sexual harassment and sexual misconduct. Eventually, she resigned from her institution. On a governmental level in the United States, the Trump administration has weakened support for survivors of sexual assault. In 2018, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos released her proposed changes to campus sexual misconduct rules, which will make it harder for students to receive an education and contend with trauma. DeVos's proposed rules let schools out the hook for ignoring sexual misconduct that happens off campus. More survivors will likely be forced out of school by harassment, assault, and their school's indifference to their complaints. Already, students who have experienced sexual harassment are more likely to drop out of college. One, student from 20, one study from 2015 found out the rate was as high as 34.1%. The lack of resources and lack of recourse for survivors is part of rape culture. Rape culture is a concept in which rape is pervasive and normalized due to societal attitudes about gender and sexuality. Elements of rape culture are correlated with other social factors and behaviors, such as rape myths, victim blaming, and trivialization of rape are positively correlated with racism, homophobia, ageism, classism, religious intolerance, and other forms of discrimination. We can see how rape culture normalizes sexual assault. We can see how the onus is placed on survivors and blames them. We can see this in numerous lists of things women and girls are told in order to prevent being raped, which can range widely from not smiling to smiling, not drinking, to not wearing certain clothes, not walking at night, not traveling alone, and so many other things. These rules constrain the ways that women move throughout the world. These rules also allow there to be the construction of the perfect victim. The rules are a key part to rape culture. The language should instead be on teaching consent and telling people not to rape. I want to finish today's lecture by looking at projects of resilience and resistance. In 2014, Columbia University student Emma Solkowitz became an outspoken figure in the fight against campus sexual assault. She carried her mattress with her around campus to every class for her final year at Columbia after she saw that the university failed to enact justice in her sexual assault case. Indian activist and artist Jasmine Patheja has numerous projects that draw attention to sexual assault. 
In her project, I Didn't Ask For It, she collects clothes donated by survivors of sexual assault as a testament to the fact that they are not to blame. As she said, it's got nothing to do with what you're wearing. There's never any excuse for such violence and nobody ever asked for it. She recently spoke at McGill to talk about this project and her other project, Meet to Sleep. Meet, the Meet to Sleep initiative empowers women to reclaim public spaces. Women, girls, and non-binary people across India sleep in, open, in the open, asserting the right to live free from fear. Sexual assault and domestic violence continue to be important issues. There are so many aspects of these issues that we could have discussed today, including how to reconcile the abolition movements with justice for survivors, but in a virtual audio format, I want to keep the focus primarily on terms and policy. The next lecture is the last lecture of the semester. All the videos, songs, images, and graphics used in podcast and transcript belong to their respective owners, and I do not claim any right over them. The opening bell sounds the school bell dot wave from 13th Panska, Transcript, McKaylin. The closing bell is from Inspector J's bell count a dot wave of freesound.org. Freeland is an exception in the Canadian Copyright Act that outlines the permitted, unauthorized use of copyright materials for specific mandated purposes. In Canada, these purposes include research, private study, education, parody, satire, criticism, review, or news reporting. For research and private study, education, parody, and satire, no special requirements are required. For criticism, review, and news reporting, the source and author must be named to constitute Freddie Lane. This is an advertisement-free podcast used for educational purposes.